There is no growth in comfort and no comfort in growth. Business today typically values and promotes leaders for their subject expertise. Leaders who have command of the details and execute based on knowledge and experience are highly respected. However, to grow as a leader, you have to get out of your comfort zone. That means learning to lead without just being the expert. Learn to gain the trust and respect of a team that might know more than you do. Get comfortable with ambiguity and with not having all the information. Develop the skills and confidence to lead in a different way. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone, and I'm Wanda Wallace. Today I want to talk about change, and it's all around us. Everybody says it all the time. Every time a leader comes in to take over a new role, they expect to create change. And the staff, as you well know, are tired of yet another change. And then on top of that, I don't know anyone who believes that change initiatives really work, unless, of course, it happens to be your change initiative. So how, how we think about change is actually part of the problem. Now, typically, almost unintentionally, leaders frame change as an us versus them challenge, meaning an us, the leaders, and the people who see it my way, the change champions, and the them, the rest of the employees who have to be persuaded, cajoled, or who are active resistors. As a consequence, unintentionally, leaders can set up an enormous barrier to success, making it harder to create buy-in, to get solutions, and ultimately to get collaboration. And the whole point of today is to say there is another way to think about change that makes it possible to create real substantive change. So with me today is Elizabeth Doty. Elizabeth has a long history of helping companies and clients deal with change. She's a former lab fellow at Harvard University's Edmund J. Safra Center for Ethics. She's a 2016 top thought leader in trust with Trust Across America. She's a founder of Leadership Momentum, and she's been working for 27 years helping C-suite leaders improve strategy execution by building a culture of commitment, collaboration, and action. Now, there's a whole range of things that Elizabeth has done over the years, but part of that is she was a lead consultant with a change services firm for a number of years, creating change that had fabulous results for clients, like a 40% increase in annual operating profit, a 35% reduction in unbillable time, and a $12 million reduction in overpayments. All great results. Elizabeth writes regularly for Strategy Plus Business Magazine. Um, she's also done some research on the practical challenges of making and keeping leadership commitments. And her book, The Compromise Trap, is also a great insight. So, Elizabeth, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you, Wanda. Glad to be here. I have to say, I've said this to you before, but I have to say to everybody else, um, I happen to like Strategy Plus Ma- Business Magazine. It's one of the places I read regularly, and I followed your columns there for ages. So I'm delighted to have you on the show. I think it's a, you, you provide great insights. I'm looking forward to this. Great. Thank you. Likewise. And I've really enjoyed the partnership with Strategy and Business. Um, the uh, editorial staff there is very interested in the actual reality on the ground of leadership rather than maybe the story or the lip service or the abstract ideas. So that's been a great venue to share some of my experiences in this long career now. Absolutely. All right. So let's get to this whole point about change. Um, You came to hold a very different view of change, and that came from your experience as a consultant. And by very different view, I mean the us versus them is one view mm-hmm. and yours is a different. So tell me about those experiences and how they affected your thinking. Sure, yeah, and I will preface this by saying 
I often talk with leaders, you know, as you first come into a new client now with my, my own clients, um, that they're frustrated with how long change takes, right? And they'll say things like, don't people understand we need to change? Uh, how can they sit there with arms crossed, apathetic? Um, don't they see this affects their future? We really need to change. So I think it's an urgent question for leaders, as you framed up in the beginning. But I do think how we, um, how we, the logic of how we think about it and our assumptions often get in the way as leaders. And the, I'll say a little about where I came to that. Um, just after business school, I had had a career in operations, so I had a great respect for people on the ground who actually did the work, um, served customers, dealt with challenges, and, you know, landed the planes every day. So my first job after business school was with a change services firm that was all change all day, every day, four days a week on site with clients. Um, and we would often hear, we'd sit in one room while the leaders talked about the strategy and the need for some big change. For example, uh, my first client was an insurance company dealing with enormous losses. And then I had the unusual opportunity to go talk with almost everyone involved with actually changing their behavior, right, because we were on-the-ground consultants. And in almost every case, there were big barriers to actually doing the change where people needed help working out the challenges. It's like something had to shift and we had to have a breakthrough for this to work. So I'll give you one example. In the insurance company, their largest losses, the, the, the bulk of their losses came from very, very large claims. Something like, you know, 84% of the claims had very small amounts and 16% accounted for 80% of their losses. And then I asked them, you know, how do you find those claims? And they'd say, oh, it's a junior analyst that has to set the right reserve level for us to recognize that it's a, it's a very complicated claim and needs our top experts. So then I would talk to those junior analysts, and they would say, yeah, and if I raise the reserve level, I go into a committee meeting where 12 experts grill me about how poorly I've handled the claim and didn't I recognize so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set the reserve level a little below <laughs> what's going to trigger that committee re- the review and do my best. Great. So here they were with an environment that stopped them from doing exactly what the company needed, which is getting help to those frontline people. And that led me to think, you know, it's too simplistic to cast these employees as the problem. And instead we need to be looking at what is the challenge this change requires us to work out together. Yeah. Does that make sense? It makes absolute sense. And Elizabeth, it resonates with my experience and clients. So I remember working for an automotive company one point in time, some experiences you've had as well. And we kept cycling over the same need and the same effort and the same initiative, a little louder and a little harder. And then been going on for years without ever really understanding the systemic causes for that issue. You see its impact at the customer level, but the backup and understand how we get ourselves in this problem and who has to be involved in the fix of it. I mean, mapping that thing out took a wall just to map out Mm -hmm. all the different components that affected it. And I know you think the same way in terms of systems. So, yes, it makes a ton of sense to me. And if you know that, how do you change how you think, Wanda? When you now that you've had that experience, when you think about a change, what is that shift in how you think about the change for you? For me personally, I am all about the voices in the room. Because if we don't get the right Mm -hmm. voices in the room from the very beginning, you don't chase the right problem. 
Mm-hmm. You think you have mm-hmm. the right problem. You have the right end result, but you don't actually know what the problem is. Yes, I, I totally agree. I get quite passionate about this one. I can get wound up about it in my own work. It's too, and I'll give you, I'll give you another example. Then I got to go back to you, but I give you another example. You know, I'm passionate about the whole gender initiative and making sure that we have strong female candidates at every level, all the way up to the top, sticking and thriving and male counterparts who are joining hands and doing all the right things for the ultimate success of any business anywhere. We've been at this problem for 30 years, and my biggest issue Mm. is we have not stopped to understand what the real problems really are. Mm -hmm. We keep throwing darts Mm -hmm. at it. Same thing. All right, so enough of me, though. Let's go back to you. So here you are with this insurance (laughs) company, recognizing that the junior analyst is maximizing their behavior based on the experiences they have with a review committee that is grilling them. That has consequences for somebody else. So, and off we go to the races. So how do you encourage people to think about change in that kind of environment? Well, so here's the, it's just what you were just saying, is we we need to recognize the um, kind of default diagnosis. I mean, literally, the moment you ask people about change, I can count on one hand people who have the more subtle approach. It's people resist change. Change is hard. People resist it. You have to be prepared for that. The moment we take that stance, it doesn't make sense to get all the voices in the room. You don't see why you need to. You're thinking, oh, I just need to push. Even when we talk about stakeholders, we talk about how we're going to push our ideas on them as if we have the whole picture. And I think the key is to assume we don't have the whole picture and that we need these other voices in order to do the right thing, to do the most effective thing. So in this case, you go and talk to the junior analysts. I actually went and talked to the expert analysts as well and said, what do you look for? Do you even know what you know about recognizing serious claims? And then could you teach someone else to recognize those things? And then to the analyst, what would the junior analyst, what would it take for you to be willing to surface these and to raise your hand earlier? And they would say, well, you know, don't chop my head off. <laughs> don't grill me. Make it easy. Make it help me look for these things. Maybe... Maybe I can surface a possible serious claim and have you come in and look over my shoulder and, you know, stay with me on it. And then we make the transition if it really does turn into a complicated claim that needs the extra help. But you do, you go out and ask and you approach change more as a tricky problem that has lots of uh, unintended consequences and hidden causes and effects and our assumptions are probably wrong and you dig into it. And I think the way leaders like to think, I keep things simple, actually blocks them, in addition to assuming resistance, blocks them from digging in, right? And it's hard. I mean, it is hard to deal with the complexity. I think that's a legitimate um, challenge for leaders. But that's how you get to the moment of the real change conversation. I agree with you. Being able to hold all the different component parts together and being able to see those and convey that to other people, that complexity is a really difficult challenge. But I also find leaders who believe their job as a leader is to know. And if they don't know what needs to be done, then why are they the legitimate leader? Are you finding the same thing? 
Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a transition in leadership, I think. And that's one reason I love the premise of the the idea of the comfort zone, you know, getting out of that. Um it's asking leaders to have a different base for their self confidence, right? And their sense of competence and value. Um but here's the trick, and there is a transition. One of my favorite um, references is an article, um, The Seven Transformations of Leadership. And one of the biggest transitions is from the technical expert to someone who is focused more on achieving goals or outcomes. So I think yeah. that's the shift that this is part of. It has wonderful payoffs. It's basically saying I'm not going to base my assess my day based on how many problems I should, I've solved. You know, one guy told me, I'm the Lone Ranger. I'm going to shoot down all your problems. I'm going to shift the basis of my value and my pride and my satisfaction, counting a good day, as the one where we moved towards the goal or the outcome, which means I need to be more of an orchestrator. I need to be more of uh, a facilitator of the group putting together its different um, pieces of the puzzle so that we actually solve what you say, the root of the, the challenge, right? We get, yeah. rather than throwing darts and working so hard at things we think might help, you spend more time diagnosing, understanding, and then acting on those things you understand as root cause or key drivers. And okay. that's focused on getting to the outcome. And I think you actually need to make a conscious shift of how you're going to see yourself and what you're going to count as a, as a successful day and, and right. your role with the team. The handful of people that I have seen who do this shift and change that you're talking about, the notion of being the facilitator or orchestra who's helping the group put together the pieces of a puzzle and not having the singular answer themselves, not having the way forward. And they see it more as we're moving towards a different state, a different goal. The handful I know with that almost don't describe change as change. They describe mm. it, it, it's not like it's a special thing. This is mm. just evolving the business. It's just the nature of what I do day in and day out, and why would we call it anything mm -hmm. special? Mm-hmm, yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. That makes so, perfect sense. It's, a, it's now what people are starting to recognize, and I don't think we've really integrated into management best practice what this implies but more and more leaders are saying it's the constant flow of change right? right well if you get ahead of that you're looking at it as the constant evolution of what i'm responsible for and what the outcomes we create and the value we create which was the original premise of business right, right continually right. looking for how do we improve the value we create and realizing there's always opportunity to improve and we are working that out together, right? I would define change as a hunch that there's some opportunity we could take advantage of if we could figure a few things out. <laughs> I love that. Change is a hunch <laughs> of some opportunity we could take advantage of <laughs> if we could figure it out. Love it. Okay. Now go back to your insurance company for a minute. Um, Okay. How did you persuade the senior people that they had to change how they were talking about this effort? Yeah, it's tricky. Um, and I was, you know, a junior consultant at the time. I think generally there are two impulses, um, two motivations. And one is 
that inherent want to be right um, mm-hmm. and to prove that, yes, it was the people and they were resisting. And mm-hmm. if you get into that conversation, it's really hard to ask leaders to back off, right? Yeah. It's, I have been in so many situations where um, it, leadership is hard, it takes a lot of confidence, and you have to be decisive under uncertainty. You, do, you know, it's them, and you're just, your right. mind is set. Um, in this case, I was able to come in on the other side, which is they had a, they had a real interest in addressing, uh, you know, the bleeding um, the, the losses the company was facing, right? Okay. So yeah. to say, so I did not come at it as you're, you know, you're wrong about your employees resisting change. More, I came and I had to work with uh, the more senior consultants who taught me some of how this is done. You come in and you say, you know what? I think there might be a hidden opportunity here if you were to work with these junior analysts to make the on-ramp, you know, make a smoother transition to discovering these severe claims, um, you could get enormous benefit, right? How important is this to you? Remind me, 84%, you know, 16% of your claims, 80% of your losses. What would it mean to you if you could, um, if you could trim that by 10%, by 20%? And then we, we, I hate to say this, but we piggybacked it on, uh, there's always some reason for change that's kind of popular at any given time. Right mm-hmm. Right now, it's uh, digitalization. Yeah. At that time, it was knowledge engineering. Okay. So I just proposed, let's piggyback this on, if we did some knowledge engineering with your expert analysts, your junior analysts could get the benefit. Right. And that made sense <laughs> to them at the time. So they had a, um, what my mentor in conflict calls a golden bridge. They had a way of making sense of re- focusing on the junior analyst with more collaboration and partnership because of the idea that there were going to be this, there was going to be this knowledge engineering, um, and so they 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 put it together as a package, right? Right. That so we're yeah, going to partner with them, but they're going to have new knowledge, um, et cetera, et cetera. I get that. So it's almost like you made them right, but right in a different way. Right about the knowledge engineering yeah. and the golden bridge that gets a better answer and a better solution. <laughs> right about hiring you as the consulting yeah. partners as, as well, I'm sure. <laughs> and the outcome, I mean, I don't know if you find this, Wanda, but everyone has has competing commitments, right? Yeah, as everyone. Robert Keegan yeah. talks about, Lisa Leahy, they were both committed to being right um, and those the employees being the problem and to improving their outcomes. So we yeah. had to find a way to partner with um, the part of them that really wanted the improvement. Right, right. Yeah, in the automotive case that I talked about at the beginning, one of the biggest issues in my mind was that people had competing priorities that were set up historically for a host of reasons that make a ton of sense and are exactly how you would want to structure the company. But it had these unintended consequences that no one had ever really looked at. So it's the same thing here. Okay. Yes. All right. Fair enough. I think that's right. So you describe this. I have one last question in this one. You you describe this in terms of the insurance company. Do you find it the same in other clients, or is that just a one-off? Is the process the same thing every time? Um, Well, actually, I've learned a ton since then myself. Um, But I think that the the magic – so first of all, this is the norm, Um, and and it's sometimes difficult to see how much better things could be. 
Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> There's so many ways we could get out of our own, out of the pain of change. Um, and this is one of the ones that if we were to let go of the default diagnosis of resistance as the biggest barrier, and that's what's slowing things down, and actually get into what people need in order to make the change and add their thinking to the change. Um, I, this is in almost every circumstance. I've, I found one example of people responsible for repairing um, uh, commuter rail cars, and they would surface safety, you know, ways to improve safety, and get no response. You know, repeatedly, they would constantly have ideas of how to improve safety. And then about once every year or two, senior leaders would come out with a safety first initiative and come down as if they were teaching these people that safety was important. Um, we're just we're just not aware of how we are impacting the um, you know others in an organization, primarily those on the front line. Another one was my mentor showed me a study of uh, um, teachers that had really really rapid adoption of a change in teaching methods, mm-hmm. and the key turned out to be that they had time to integrate the new approach into their lesson plans, <laughs> right? We just yeah. underestimate the mechanics of what people need in order to make a change. And if we were to stop and inquire into that, we would both remove some of those barriers and you actually end up helping people deal with the very real phenomenon of resistance. Phenomenon mm-hmm. of resistance. It's just that you don't start there. Yeah. So it's, I get the point, is that yes, resistance is, does really exist, but it's actually a relatively small percentage of the population, I think, that it's the rest of the yeah. people who don't get it. It's not that they don't get it. They actually don't think you're thinking about it in the right way. There's stuff they know that you haven't thought about. You're talking down to them as opposed to trying to include them and help them part of the solution. And then you have this tiny bit of people who are actually resisting for a number of reasons. Those are the easy ones to deal with. It's the rest of them that are the hard ones. Yeah, and, and they usually have good logic. Um, right. Can I give you one more example? Yes, please. Um, so I worked with a group of field HR staff, and we were doing a learning uh, activity, a community of practice for them to share best practices with each other. And what we discovered in the kind of the warm-up activity was that they were all furious at home office for how they were rolling out HR changes. Okay. And what, what turned out was the home office departments, each was a center of excellence around you know recruiting, benefits, employee engagement surveys, um, facilities improvements. They were rolling out their changes, but in these, you know, isolated uh, looking at them in isolation, they looked like they were doing change best practice because they were looking mm-hmm. at their initiatives. Mm-hmm. But they were literally rolling them out on the same day. Yeah. Like they, were, they weren't coordinating with each other. So there might be two special events that the field HR person was supposed to um, uh, implement as a collaborative person from home office, but on the same day with no awareness or even interest. And the home office department just literally hadn't thought about it. So they got together and they had a a session, which the initial session was very tense. And they started to interview each other about how they were affecting each other's work. And they came up with a few simple rules of what they would do differently. And one of them was um, create a shared calendar of change initiatives across all of the departments and include the planning part of a change, not just the rollout after it's formed. 
Right. Those two simple rules allowed the field to take the change. They were fine with doing the changes, right? I mean, some of them, they may have had some hesitation about the content, but it was literally the Home Office didn't realize how they were affecting people. And, and you want to know about that, right? I mean, that's not... That's unintentional, and it doesn't help anybody to do it in that haphazard way. Yeah, absolutely. I see that a lot of times. And one of my colleagues, um, Peter Wright, says, you know, you may have five ideas that need to get done in your group, let's say in HR in this particular occasion, but those five ideas turn into five projects and those five projects mm-hmm. turn into 15, you know, change initiative things as it cascades down. And you completely overwhelm the field group's ability to do anything. Yeah. And that's just HR. Yeah. We haven't talked about finance or <laughs> other, yeah, you know, risk. Or, that's right. I mean, I think we don't even stop to think how many other places are trying to dump something on a country or a region or a field office in one place or another. No. All right, so we let don't. me shift this conversation. And I think that's Just... partly because we have a metaphor of the company as a machine mm-hmm. um, or, you know, racehorses running in parallel. We do not think about the interdependencies. And I was just watching, are you familiar with the book, The Goal? It's an no, old classic. No, not. Yeah. So Eli um, Goldratt, uh, The Theory of Constraints, was a, an approach to getting right. phenomenal results in factories, like literally right. increasing throughput from the same factory by 40%. Okay. Just by not overwhelming it at the point of the constraint, the bottleneck in the system, you pace the whole system based on the speed of the bottleneck, and then you, run, you reduce complexity and confusion and waste. This is, you know, one of the main... Uh, rules. He has several. Um, The same thing applies to our organizations. We're throwing these darts and not concerning ourselves with what is really going to move the needle. And what moves the needle is working on your biggest bottlenecks, your biggest constraints. So we probably shouldn't be doing those 15 initiatives. They probably aren't actually helping if they're not addressing the constraint on the whole system. That's an interesting idea. I have a client at the moment who's trying to chase simplicity as a theme. I think there are quite a few of them out there in mm-hmm. the world, but this particular client, and that would be a really interesting approach for them to start to look at where are our constraints. Forget the notion of simplicity, where are constraints, and how do we solve that problem? Okay, yeah. Elizabeth, I have one last question before we take a break. So do okay. you have tips for helping people or tactics for helping people map out some of the complexity so that you can begin to see where the constraints are and the bottlenecks are and where the work really needs to be done? Yeah, yeah. Well, there are a number of approaches. Um, I think the main the main uh, strategy, the, the biggest difference will come from coming together to map your flow, the workflow, the system, as it relates to customers. And this requires you to think in terms of outcomes, not actions. Like, how are we actually delivering for customers? The records mm-hmm. are completely different from what we say internally. Mm-hmm. So Bain found something like 8% of companies deliver an exceptional experience when 80% of the companies think they do. Um, Mapping it from the perspective of the customer, and then how does our work interact to get there? Right. And simply doing some triangulation, uh, assumption testing, trying to clarify how all the parts work together, you will get um, 
you'll get 80% of the benefit from just having whatever mapping method you like. I, I mean, systems dynamics uses causal loops. I think simply just mapping your major processes is one of the biggest, um, you get most of the, most of the benefit. And then within that, asking yourselves, what do we want to shift? Because of course we're all working full out. Right? right. So right. The, the Heath brothers are really good at identifying with change. What is the shift that would make the difference here? Um, for example, one famous story, uh, departments in an auto uh, company doing the R&D made a simple shift from telling each other about changes as soon as they knew rather than as late as possible. <laughs> right? Think how that ripples through the whole the whole system. But first you have to have an understanding of the interdependence. And so right. uh, mapping processes, mapping the customer journey through all the departments, um, trying to articulate your process together, you'll, you'll end up laughing, right? You'll end up having the humility I think we all need because <laughs> it's not like we think it is. Yeah, yeah. Just this week I was with a client, the same, same process. There's a problem come up and it has a huge risk component attached to it. So everybody has to be looking at it at very senior levels. And fundamentally, they just haven't gone back to look at the process that they have without thinking about it. And now who's involved now, 10 years after the yeah. thing was created and who needs to be involved and what checks and balances. And it's just back to that mapping the process. It's an interesting thing. <laughs> Okay. How did we forget to map processes, oh, Wanda? I don't know. I don't know. It's like how could we forget <laughs> how to run a meeting, but somehow we seem to be able to do that as human beings. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. All right, so we're going to take a break at this point. With me today is Elizabeth Adoti. As you can tell, Elizabeth has done a lot of very interesting things. She's a 2016 top thought leader in trust. She's the founder of Leadership Momentum. She's been working for 27 years with C-suite leaders. She's the author of The Compromise Trap, and she's done some fabulous work on the practical challenges of making and keeping leadership commitments. I could go on and on. I think what's most fast, what's the most important part of all of this is for every one of us wanting to drive change for all the right reasons to stop and check our mental mindset of what we're thinking and to shift from having the right answer the right way forward and everybody else failing to get it shift instead to how do we as a group move towards a better outcome a better result and that will change the way we look at the constraints and the complexity and the problems and ultimately we think the results that you get when we come back we're going to talk more candidly about what this means you can do as a leader trying to drive change so we'll be right back When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. Is your business running? It should be running smoothly with nary a hiccup, like a finely tuned machine. But if you're like most businesses, yours may be running nowhere close to that. 
Listen for Operationally Speaking with your host, Sergio Samel. Our program will help you to run your entrepreneurial business easier, better, with less frustration. And by running it well, you're sure to be poised for faster growth. Tune in every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now. Toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. We've been talking with Elizabeth Doty, and we've been talking about change. And the whole notion here is that while change, everybody's changing, we're changing all the time, changing faster, changing more, changing huge volumes. At the same time, it feels like we're not making any progress on way too many cases. I think that's adding to people's stress levels and frustration levels. And sometimes when I look at my clients and wonder if you can't get some of these things done, how on earth are you making any money at all? But the notion here is that we have to be talking about a different view of change, a systemic view where we're looking at the entire system. We're looking at the process, especially as it affects the customer experience or the customer outcomes. We have to be looking at the complexities and we have to be looking at the constraints and bottlenecks. And we do this collectively, not as a small group sitting off in a room somewhere who comes up with the idea and comes out to announce it. This is an integrated process where we're discovering what is actually creating challenges for people in the implementation of what might be great ideas. So um, with that said, let's get down, Elizabeth, to a little bit more tactics. So I just want to hit from you first. What do you think is most important to do, especially first, when I see that there's a need for a change and I'm leading the organization? Mm -hmm. I think the, the first thing is to dive into what leads me to think there's an opportunity here. Right? I, I threw out the idea that it's a hunch. And just what, what is the target I see? What is the new, um, the new territory, the new arena, the shift that might be possible here? And flesh it out a little bit more. Like a lot of our conversation, Wanda, has been around testing assumptions. Dive into it a little bit more. So, for example, one uh, sales manager for a region said, I think we can double revenue. Well, why do you think that? Well, dive in a little bit more. We've been growing at 10% a year. So what makes you think we can do that much better? Go check it out. Don't just go tell, announce it to your employees and say you all need to make it real. So in this one case that I'm um, thinking of, the leader went out and he said, well, look, the market's growing at this rate, and I've substantiated that on these areas, and multinationals are investing in this region, um, and the total available market is growing very quickly. 
So that is the basis on which I think there's an opportunity here. So you come back to your folks and you start to say, here's this driver of change. Flesh out the driver of the change first and then engage your people in whether it's real, what it would mean, and what they might have to commit to to make it real, Mm -hmm. to uh, to take advantage of it. Great. I love that. As opposed to, here's a goal, I've just hand-landed on you, good luck. Yeah, and if you ask questions, you're a resistor. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we've all been there. Yeah. I mean, well, you don't want to... All right, so, and you have this notion about pivotal commitments. Explain what those are, why do they work, what's important in that one? Yeah, so I've gotten interested, and there are a number of people who've been following this thread. I've I've been interested for a while in this idea of organizational commitments. Um, And one way it came to me, partly because uh, in the interviews for my book, when people said they had stress at work related to their values, it was because they couldn't keep their word or they felt they were put in positions where they couldn't keep commitments. Um, So I got interested in, you know, what is this and why do people care so much about keeping their word? And it ends up being a very uh, strong value for many, many business people. Um, you know, they may be cutthroat competitors, but they still believe in honoring their word in many cases, most cases. Um, also, when you look into leadership management literature or strategy literature, almost everyone says you can get the benefit of market differentiation. You can get the benefit of customer loyalty. You can get the benefit of a strong supply chain if you really commit. That you have to actually say we're going to do this and stick with it. Even strategy and business analysis of innovation said if you have an innovation idea, the key is to stick with it over time to develop it. So I started realizing that it's both pivotal to really make commitments. It's becoming harder because we've espoused disruption and and change and flexibility. Um, And it's not clear how many we can make. And I don't know about you, but most of the leaders I work with and that volume of change you talked about, we make these commitments. Leaders make these commitments kind of instinctively to build trust and excitement. But they make too many. Mm -hmm. They're not credible in total. Because you can't possibly reorganize your sales force and develop a new market and develop a new product line at the same time. Right. So the idea of pivotal commitments is we have to make fewer, better, real commitments based on insight that that will actually drive the needle for our business. And that's hard, and it's it's, uh, mobilizing for your employees because then they, they know where to focus and what to work on. Right. I can give some right. examples if you like. I'd love to hear examples. Are there an ideal number of commitments? <laughs> well, I suppose the ones you can remember without having to <laughs> consult your strategy document is probably a good barometer. Oh, that would three be three. To five. Yeah, right. That's right? <laughs> um, and, and they're at different levels and they're nested. And and if you look at it, organizations are full of commitments. So almost every relationship, any interface in a business is driven by understandings, agreements, or commitments. But at the level of your overarching strategy, your brand promise, what does it mean you will do and you won't do? Mm-hmm. Um, brand promises are a perfect example. You know, if, uh, in the old days, Goldman Sachs had the promise to put their clients' interests first. 
became very complicated when they got into more brokerage, where they're on both right. sides of a transaction. But in the beginning, it was my understanding, it was, it was a very real commitment that drove lots and lots of people's behaviors because it was so clear. They drew right. a, a line in the sand. Right. Another one I like is um, there's a small company, or actually don't know their size, sorry. There's a company named Tetra Pak. Mm-hmm. That has the brand promises every package we design will save more money than it costs. Wow. That's very clarifying, right? Wow. That's incredible. Okay. But, right? And it's got the power of a line in the sand. It's not too specific, but it draws the right line for clients to see the value and for the, uh, you know, the design teams to know what they're aiming for. Um, those are really elegant. And they're like the simple rules in a complex system. Um, mm-hmm. As people are starting to describe, Saul and Eisenhardt have been um, writing about mm-hmm. these. Um, these are those rules that allow us to coordinate and focus. Uh, Southwest Airlines um, will fly only 737s was the rule for yeah. a long time. Drastically simplified their operations, their pilot training, their ability to um, job share. Mm-hmm. That's what I mean. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was enormous efficiencies that have been written about that one. Okay, so I have to come back to several things you hear, you've said here. In this notion of pivotal commitments, um, you said that part of the stress at work is that we can't keep our commitments. And it's not because I agree with you. It's not because people are somehow bad and don't care about keeping their promises. It's that the complexity makes it hard to keep the commitments you know, timelines change, what you thought you could get done yesterday, you can't actually get done anymore, and you just keep dragging it on. The reason I want to make this comment is uh, last week we were talking with Aaron Hurst, who talks about purpose and how to identify people's purpose. And his research says that people get a sense of purpose and meaning from one of three places. Either I want to have an impact on the world, some level on the world, okay. or two, I want to be able to do the right things. It's a values-driven sense of purpose. Or three, I want to be able to do things in the right way. I care really about quality. And what you're talking about here, this sense of being able to keep my commitments, is really people who care are driven by that sense of do the right thing or do it in the right way. Because all of those affect Mm -hmm. the values I have, what matters to me and my sense of purpose. So I think this notion of being able to make a commitment and know that you will stick with it regardless, and that means making fewer, is a really powerful one for all of us as leaders inside organizations, way beyond just the change initiatives. And then I love your examples about brand promises, you know, making your promise, your commitment to the customer, simple, clear, distinct, and it becomes a simple rule in a complex system. Excellent. So, you know, any other insights on what we do around pivotal commitments? Any other advice? Yeah, yeah. And let me um, let me come back to the idea of being able to stick with it. One of the things, we're, as we talked about earlier, we're of two minds. Um, mm-hmm. you know, on the one hand, we must change all the time. Um, and one of the things we haven't talked about yet is how do I look at people who have questions about a change, people yeah. who seem to oppose it. Often, and I, I think it's much more useful to think of these people as guardians, they're okay. the ones who maybe remember what we promised <laughs> and see how a seemingly unrelated decision could not, you know, in one sense it's very casual, it could undermine a promise, it actually could violate a promise. And, for example, salespeople frequently tell me they are pushed 
to go out with a certain message around, say, a line of products or, or mm-hmm. services. You know, you need to go out and do this right now. And so they'll go out and make promises to customers about, say, the company's strategy to mm-hmm. their global accounts. So those global accounts make decisions based on expectations of the company's product strategy. And mm-hmm. then those salespeople tell me they are forced, they're turned into liars because the mm-hmm. company announces a completely different strategy and doesn't even stop to weigh what is the impact of breaking. Most of the time, the conversation about the commitment doesn't even come up. It's yeah. your guardians that say, wait a second, do we want to break this promise? We, we promised something, and that requires memory. <laughs> Corporations right. are not good at memory. And this, can, this is not trivial. Um, the story of Schwab. Uh, right. You know, Charles Schwab left as CEO. New CEO comes in, pushes the company in a certain direction. The employees balked, I think, because they were guarding the company's commitment to customers. And then Mr. Schwab comes back and says, thank God you didn't change so much. You kept yeah. the customer focus. So I think we need to look at that as a resource. It's keeping us honest. And if you look at it that way, as a leader, you can avoid some really uh, self-defeating um, behaviors. Um and then I do have some advice on how to think about the, the day-to-day if you're looking at business as a series of commitments to allow us to, um, to coordinate. Great. So if you like, Great. I can go into that. All right. I want to come back to that one. I really love this. I want to just emphasize this because it's so important. People who have questions, even if they don't ask them in the nicest way in whatever town hall <laughs> or meeting or someplace, and you feel in the moment absolutely challenged and triggered and angry and everything else, that they're being guardians. They're rem- remembering the promises we've made, probably to important stakeholders like customers or to employees in general. And they want to question, are we really aware that we're breaking this promise? I love that framework. It's fabulous. Okay, so day to day, how do I begin to think about the commitments that I'm making in a practical way that keeps me out of trouble? Yeah. <laughs> so... I think there's a really lovely way to simplify our work as leaders for leaders in the midst of organizations, which I'm not, um, to simplify their work, to look at what's already underway, what's already in motion, what's already working, clarify the driver of change, like you talked about, you know, um, Mm -hmm. go out and experience what is it that makes me think there's an opportunity. As you said at the beginning, I'm a new manager, I'm being brought in, I'm expected to make change. What do you think the new opportunity is? And then what is the commitment or few commitments that enable us to get there? So, for example, a sales team that is spinning its wheels on small deals, time-consuming proposals, and is missing the opportunity for really large partnerships, you know, moving what they call from squirrel hunters to big game hunters, Mm -hmm. right? Although hunter's not a great analogy for customer partnerships. There's an opportunity there to shift your game, right, Mm -hmm. to really move to the next level. And this is that constant process of evolution. You're looking at what might drive change, where there might be an opportunity, and what is the commitment that would enable us to take advantage of that. And you can talk about this with your team. In this case, um, the company, the team I'm thinking of saw the opportunity for more global accounts, for more long-term, bigger uh, relationships with clients, and they realized the commitment they would need to make is to spend more of their time on deals that wouldn't close in this quarter. Mm-hmm. That 
that is the shift that would enable them to get those bigger accounts. And so the manager, in, in frustration at one point, literally said to them, here's what I'm asking you to commit to. I'm asking you to put 80% of your time into deals that won't close until future quarters. Wow. This is incredibly focusing. If you want to accelerate change, put some time into what you're asking them to commit to, and then put it out, and then let an honest conversation follow. The team, in this case, their jaws were on the floor. Are you kidding? I can't yeah. do 80%. I would lose revenue. I would be dropping deals that are ready to close with positive margins, and I, I wouldn't be able to go to club. So then the, uh, the leader said, what can you do? I can do 25%, 40%, and I can revisit in six weeks. And okay. then the leader went to the next level, and he said, okay, that's a good start. What do you need from me in order to make that commitment? Great. So make it mutual. So clarify the driver and what the hunch is. Explore and ask for the commitment that you would like to see people change. Have a real conversation about it. And then ask them what they need from you in order to make that commitment. What do you need from me to say yes? And in this case, okay. it was things like, don't spend all of our meetings looking at the forecast for this quarter. <laughs> right? There are things we are doing unintentionally because we're humans, we're stressed, we're moving fast, we don't realize it, no one can see the whole system. Just ask them, what would you need from me in order to say yes? In 90% of the cases, um, leaders tell me, and in classes where I teach this, it's the, uh, the employees want you to stick with something. Yeah. <laughs> they, they just want you to have the same priority next week and next yeah. month. Yeah. Right? So ask them. And then finally help everyone follow up by intentionally looking at your own commitments. You can only make a few real ones like changing your meetings to shop, stop focusing on forecasts. Make a few and then make a habit of revisiting them with yourself and with your team. Just the questions you ask. Another colleague taught me this. The questions a leader asks tells people where to focus. So if your questions focus on those fewer, better commitments, you'll be prompting people to think about it, be ready for it, and manage it themselves. Okay. Well, that's a powerful one. If you just think about the questions you ask and how that directs people's energy. And particularly, we're back to the sales leader here. If you're asking about forecasts on sales, then you're telling people that's what matters. It's yeah, it's yeah. very crystal clear. Yeah. The questions you ask. So you review it. A habit of reviewing the few commitments that you made both with yourself and with your team. Yep. All right. And we said at the beginning, one, maybe three, certainly no more than five commitments. I don't think you can do five commitments at this level and mean it and stick no, with no. it. No, no. Especially not habits. No. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's much more one or two commitments that you really genuinely are going to mean and you're going to do. I find an awful lot of people when they're resisting change, their fundamental question is not so much that this is a ch bad change idea. Their fundamental question yeah. is, are we going to be in the same place in six months from now? Like, are you going to be here, leader, and on this same bandwagon for six months? Because if not, why am I moving? And we're back to another kind of commitment. That, that is it. And then the leader has to think through, what can I commit to? And you are absolutely right. If, if we approach this from curiosity and the idea that there's things other people see that we don't, many times they see that this is a, um, it's a risk 
for them, right? They can mm-hmm. put in energy and either not have it pay off or look bad in the next regime, right? Mm-hmm. If things change and they were the gung-ho one for customers and the next leader comes in and focuses on short-term mm-hmm. profits. Yeah. So you can have that conversation, and I think we need to because you can't promise you will be here. So yeah. what can you promise? Okay. I can. The, the, many of the changes in behavior we're talking about don't have that long of a lead time if you get on them right away. Right. So you can promise if you focus on longer-term sales, I will make sure your pipeline is vi- visible to the um, uh, C-suite level so they know you have pipeline, so you will be seeing whatever happens to me. Okay. I like that one, that sense of the recognition that you might actually not be there and then how are you going to make everybody okay in the process? That's a really good one. And I like the question of what can you do? You know, so I want double, you say no, what can we do? What do you think is possible? And it becomes a bit of a negotiation there as well. So Elizabeth, every now and then, so we've talked about resistance. We've talked about resistors as first reframe your thinking. They're probably not resistors. They probably have some legitimate questions. Two, a lot of those people who we label as resistors are actually guardians. They remember what we promised already to customers and stakeholders and want to be legitimate in their um, delivering on those commitments. But every now and then, and they just see things we don't see. So if you take those three perspectives, a lot of the notion of resistance goes away. But occasionally you still have people who say, I'm not sure. How do you deal with those people? Mm. Well, a lot of the kind of implicit frame, assumption behind this conversation is to view people as thinking adults, mm-hmm. as you know, people who don't knee-jerk. They're, they're not um, amoebas that knee-jerk go for self-interest. They have other... They have uh, altruism. They have contributions to make. They have larger concerns. They, um, as you say, sometimes see things we don't see. Um, there is usually a good reason, and if, even if there's a fundamental unwillingness, um, you can do that. You can handle that with respect and treat people as thinking adults. So I'll give you an example, um, and it's... It's a little bit telling that this had to get all the way to the CEO before someone asked the question. Um, But a finance team was having to outsource their routine Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. uh, reporting and accounting. And one fellow was kind of dragging his feet. And he was going through, you know, managing it, but he wasn't putting that discretionary effort in. And finally, when they presented the ultimate plan to the CEO, the CEO noticed and he said, you know, hey, Joe, you are very quiet. What are you what are you thinking? And he said, you know, I can see the business logic of all this. But I'm just wondering where my kids are gonna work. <laughs> wow. Right? He had a it was a dilemma. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It's fabulous. Elizabeth, we could keep talking about this for the next three hours, I am certain. And unfortunately, we are out of time. So my guest today is Elizabeth Doty. The book, if you'd like to read it, is called The Compromise Trap. Elizabeth's business is called Leadership Momentum. And we have been talking about the notion of change. 
and this notion that I think you summarize it the best at the end that the people that we're working with are thinking adults. They see things we don't see. They have perspectives and concerns we may not have understood and recognized. And it's a matter of getting them to talk about those, making a few commitments, really sticking with it and asking, what does it take for, for you? What can you do and what does it take from me for you to be able to commit to getting that one? Elizabeth, thank you for a fabulous show. Wonderful, Wanda. Yes, all the best. All right, thank you. And join us next week for another episode on how to get out of your comfort zone. Thank you for joining us for Out of the Comfort Zone. Tune in again for another edition with Dr. Wanda Wallace next Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.